everyone. Happy New Year to you all. Today we are starting a new study or a new series, if you will, in the life of our church, a study of the book of Ephesians. Now, why Ephesians? Klein Snodgrass said, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. Artemidge Robinson called Ephesians the crown of St. Paul's writings. But despite the acclaim, that is not the reason why myself and Ricardo thought that this book was a proper book at this time in the life of our church. Since being called as your senior pastor, I have met with numerous pastors since taking over here, and I've shared with them my hope for what this dear church body would look like in the future. And nearly unanimously, they have shared with me that whatever my hope, whatever my goal is for this dear body, that I need to preach on it. Now, if I were to describe the book of Ephesians with one phrase, I would call it a discourse of divine grace or a study of God's grace. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, good overview sentence, but how does that relate to your desire, your hope for what Faith Bible Fellowship Church is to look like in the future? And I would say it goes something like this. That since God in His grace, He has chosen us as His children for adoption, He has redeemed us through Jesus Christ, and He has sealed us all with the promised Holy Spirit, since we as a church have been reconciled back to God via the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have unity with God. And because we have unity with God, we also then have unity with each other. And this is where, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. Through faith, Bible, fellowship, it is where the manifold wisdom of God is revealed to all people in all the world, and yes, even to York County. And it is my desire that we, as the individuals who make up Faith Bible Fellowship Church, who all have the same standing before the Holy God Himself, that we are all one, that we are all united in Christ. That is why we are going to preach through Ephesians Church. Which takes us to our thesis this morning, or the two main themes we will be looking at this morning from the sermon. And it is this. That in love, our God, He has chosen us, He has predestined us, and He has adopted us in Jesus Christ. Thus, in one united voice, let us praise His most holy name. That God in love, He has chosen us, He has predestined us, and He has adopted us in Jesus Christ. Thus, with one united voice, let us praise His most holy name. Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 1. We will be in verses 1 through 6. I'd highly recommend you following along in your Bibles this morning with the text. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a weighty task you have put text you have put before us this morning. Father, it showcases the beauty of you as a sovereign God, and it makes us humble ourselves, Lord. Father, let us come before this text and come before you this morning with humbled minds and humbled hearts. Father, give us a high, high, high view of God and a low view of man. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to the text this morning and convict us, Lord. As your children, you have given us the privilege to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. And yet we have been called to be holy and blameless and to share your message with the world. Let us be united in that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin this morning with some historical context on the book of Ephesians, looking at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see from the first word, Of the first verse, the author of this letter is none other than the Apostle Paul. But there is some debate as to whom the exact audience is to who Paul writes. Because the earliest, some of the earliest manuscripts we have leave out the phrase in in Ephesus. It says, to the saints who are, and it actually in some of the earliest manuscripts leaves that spot blank. So what many scholars believe is that the book of Ephesians, it is actually a circular letter intended not only for the saints who were in Ephesus, but also intended for saints throughout Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And this seems probable because Paul had quite the ministry while he was in Ephesus. In Acts 19, verse 10, it says that while Paul was there, he was diligent in preaching so that all residents in Asia could hear the gospel. And it was during Paul's third missionary journey that he stayed at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a giant port city located right along a river basin. It was a massive commercial area, a massive spiritual center, a massive political area. One commentator I read said, think of Manhattan or think of Istanbul in terms of its size and in terms of its influence. In terms of its moral condition, R.H. Charles said that it was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. And at the center of its immorality was that of Artemis. 
Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility or the Greek goddess of the hunt. And people came from all over Asia Minor to worship her in Ephesus at her nearly 100,000 square foot temple. Church, you think ministry in York is difficult. Try Ephesus. But Paul starts preaching and he starts teaching for about three years and the church grows in Ephesus. God in his grace via the power of the gospel begins changing hearts in the midst of the cults, in the midst of the idols, in the midst of their love for money, in the midst of their sexual immorality. The church grows. But after Paul leaves, and over a certain period of time, a lack of unity within the church begins to fester. Tony Miranda says that the lack of unity was between Jews who became Christians and Gentiles who became Christians, and also a lack of unity between Gentiles who became Christians while Paul was there, and also a lack of unity between Gentiles who became Christians once Paul left. So Paul writes to these Christians to remind them that there is no need for a lack of unity because we are all one in Christ. We have the same standing before God himself. Which takes us to our first point this morning. That the doctrine of election, it is not a man-made fabrication, but it is a biblical tenet which rightfully displays the sovereignty of God and our humble standing before him. The doctrine of election is not a man-made fabrication, but a biblical tenet which rightfully displays the sovereignty of God and our humble standing before him. Verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In verse 3, we see, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have Trinitarian language here, that we have been, been blessed by God the Father in and through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And even though we are in the here, in the now, in this broken and fallen world, it is the Holy Spirit who is equipping the saints and blessing them with every spiritual blessing. We have been transformed, and as we see at the end of verse 4 that we are to be holy and blameless before him. But sandwiched in between that we have been blessed by God through Jesus Christ and at the end of verse 4 that we should be holy and blameless before him. To start verse 4, we come across the phrase, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of of the world. Even as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. It is a phrase, it is a concept, this doctrine of election that tends to make some people bristle. Bristle over the idea that God would choose a people to be in a relationship with him. I have heard some argue that this notion of God choosing a people, that it is a man-made concept originated by the reformer John Calvin. 
I have heard people claim that it is an Old Testament concept and it does not apply to us anymore. But church, I am lovingly here to share and paraphrasing the BFC's articles of faith that God sovereignly from eternity past for reasons known only to himself and apart from any foreseen faith and or goodness found in man, God has graciously chosen from among fallen mankind a people unto salvation whom he sealed with his promised his Holy Spirit and who he will conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And this concept, it is not a BFC concept only. It is not a Calvinistic concept only. It is not an Old Testament concept only. It is not a New Testament concept only. It is a biblical concept. God sovereignly chose who would make up his church body. And if you do not believe me, I will ask you lovingly to consider the meta-narrative of Scripture for a second. Did God choose Abraham, or did he choose Terah, Abraham's father, to make a covenant with? God sovereignly chose Abraham. Did God choose Israel, or did he choose Egypt to be his people? God sovereignly chose Israel. Did God choose Jacob, or did he choose Esau when he said that the older shall serve the younger? God sovereignly chose Jacob. God chose his people. Now, another counterpoint I often hear concerning God and his chosen people is this. Well, Wes, what about October 14th, 1989? That was the day I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. What about that day? The day I accepted Jesus Christ. I will lovingly say that each of Jesus' 12 disciples, they all accepted the call to follow Jesus. They left their professions, they left their fishing boats, they left their tax booths to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus' response to them in John 15, 16 is this, that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should be, that you should bear fruit. Yes, we are saved through a personal confession, a personal belief, a personal trust in Jesus Christ. But we can only make that confession, we can only have that trust in Jesus Christ if God chooses us first. Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Note the order there. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace, the grace of God that we need. We need to be given grace in order to have the ability to accept the call of Christ, to have faith. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, God's sovereign call versus man's ability to make decisions and to have faith. How exactly does that work? How do you reconcile that then, Wes? In A.W. Tozer's book, In Knowledge of the Holy, he attempted to display how God's sovereignty in choosing or electing a people works in turn with man's will. He stated, an ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This, he says, is at least a faint picture of God's sovereignty. 
On board the liner are scores of passengers. They are not in chains, neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, they sleep, they play, they lounge about on the deck, they read, they talk all together as they please. But all while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward their predetermined point. Both freedom and sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, are displayed here. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history for his chosen people. Church, to affirm the sovereignty of God is to affirm that he sovereignly chose his people in him before the foundation of the earth. But how does God call individuals into a relationship with himself? Will bring us to point number two today. That God in love, according to his perfect will, predestined his children for adoption through his son Jesus Christ. And the only proper response to this work is one of praise. That God in love, according to his perfect will, predestined his children for adoption through his son Jesus Christ. And church, the only proper response to this work is one of praise. Verses 5 and 6, it says that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, there's a little debate concerning the phrase in love here. Whether in love is referring to Christians being holy and blameless, as we saw at the end of verse 4, or if in love is referring to God in love who has predestined his children. Now, considering the context and the natural transition here, it seems most likely that God in love predestined his children for adoption. And if that is the case, then this would be Paul's logic. This would be Paul's train of thought from verses 4 through 6. That before the creation of the world, God chose individuals out of a group of people, people that make up all generations, every nation, every tongue, every ethnicity, every age. God has chosen out of the fallen world a group of people. And what did he do with them? In love, he predestined them for adoption as his children through his son, Jesus Christ. Now don't overthink this word predestined here. As Philip Schaeff noted, it refers to God sovereignly choosing for a pre-appointed end who would be his people, who would be his saved children. Now I mentioned earlier that some find this notion, this idea, these doctrines of election and predestination to be bristle-worthy. And if you are bristling this morning at any of these doctrines, first let me say, I understand. I understand because I once bristled at them as well. But one of the reasons I stopped 
bristling at them because as I read Paul describing them, I noticed that Paul didn't bristle at them. And one of the reasons I think Paul doesn't bristle at these doctrines is because Paul knew exactly what he, where he stood before a holy God on his own merit. To put it lightly, Paul was a bad dude. Listen to Galatians 1.13. Paul says that, For you have heard in my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, what does violently persecuting the church look like? Acts 7, it says that they casted him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, Paul. In Acts 8, it says that Saul, Paul, approved of his execution, and there arose on that great day persecution against the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 9, it says, but Paul, Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way to Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. To summarize, in Acts 22, Paul says, I I persecuted this way, Christianity to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Paul knew that the only way he could be saved was not based on his own merit, was not God looking down the corridors of time to see if or how Paul would respond to the gospel. But Paul knew the only way he could be saved was according to the will of God, who in love predestined him for adoption before the creation of the world. And the only possible response to this sovereign saving work of God, Paul says in verse 6, is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. To the praise of his glorious grace for saving a wretch like me. Not to the questioning of his glorious grace. Not to the doubting of his glorious grace. Not to the mistrust of his glorious grace. But to the praise of his glorious grace. But Wes, what if Paul was like some really special kind of depraved, like completely broken type of depraved? And is it possible that I'm just kind of like a bent type of depraved? Not broken like Paul. I'm not killing anyone. My sins aren't as bad as Paul. But is it possible that I'm just kind of like a bent depraved and I have enough goodness in me to choose God? First, I will acknowledge that, yes, your sins might not be as heinous as Paul's. But in the eyes of a holy God, every sin is worthy of his holy wrath. Thus, in order for Paul, in order for you, in order for any other individual who walked on the earth to be saved, Romans 9 said, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God chose He predestined and he adopts, not so man can revel and glory in themselves, 
but so that God be glorified through man's redemption. I had a conversation this week with a dear brother about the doctrine of total depravity, which is the idea that our nature is thoroughly corrupt. It is thoroughly sinful because of the fall. And we concluded that Christians, especially within Reformed circles, they tend to have no issues affirming this doctrine universally. Affirming the doctrine of total depravity, that our nature is thoroughly corrupt as a whole when we talk about humanity. Yes, humanity is totally depraved. But where the disconnect comes in is that we struggle and we fail to see ourselves as totally depraved. We fail to see ourselves as repulsive. We see, fail to see ourselves as dead in sin. And I am here to share with you this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, do not see, deceive yourself. The only work, the only merit you brought to your salvation, it was your sin. Donald Barnhouse, he tells the story of a young man who had been brought up in one of the worst slums in New York. But he rose to fame in the theatrical field because of his talents. So he bought himself a yacht. And although he hired a man to run it for him, he himself assumed the title of captain. He bought himself a fancy uniform and invited his mother to go on a cruise with him. Now, his mother had come to America from Europe, and she had retained her native common sense. So when the man came onto the deck to parade around his mother in his fancy, on his fancy boat in his fancy uniform, he said to his mother, Look, Mama, I'm a captain. To which his mother replied, Sammy, by you, you is a captain. By me, you is a captain. But by captains, you is no captain. Barnhouse concluded that by you, you might think you're a decent person. By your neighbor, they might think you are a decent person. But according to the perfect and holy law of God, we are dead in our sins, church. And if we truly believe If we see ourselves as depraved and as thoroughly corrupt and thoroughly sinful, when we come face to face with the doctrine of election and the idea that despite our depravity, despite our polluted garments, despite our wickedness, that God in love would still choose, that he would still predestine, that he would still adopt us into his family as the children of God, the only right, the only proper, the only acceptable response is praise to his glorious grace. Glory, glory, hallelujah, God, for saving a wretch like me. You see, we could never save ourselves. So to redeem us, God in his grace, he chose a people. He predestined them and adopted them to be his people for his glory. And that is us, the church. Thus, the only acceptable response, church, to this is praise to his glorious grace. For while we were dead in our sins, God chose us, he predestined us, and he adopted us in Jesus Christ so we could be his people. 
We did absolutely nothing. Christ paid it all to the praise of His glorious grace. Thus, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who was here, who has just heard me ramble over and over again about God choosing a people to Himself before the creation of the world. And you, non-Christian, might be sitting there this morning wondering, well, is that it? Do I have any chance of being saved? And Paul notes in Romans 9 that it is only God's mercy we can be saved. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Yet in Romans 10, Paul goes on and shares this how salvation is to be accomplished. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on his name. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And the natural response of God's people when they hear the gospel, it is to respond in faith. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the God of this world who broke into the world to save sinners from their sin. The law that we could never keep, Jesus Christ, He kept it. He lived the life that we absolutely could not live. And because of His love for God the Father, His devotion and love for His children, He bore the wrath that we deserve for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. The wrath I deserve for my sin, the wrath we all deserve, Jesus Christ, He took the wrath of God and He was crucified. And he was crushed and he was buried. But three days later, he was raised for our justification. He was raised so that we could be saved. He showcased to the world he defeated sin and he defeated death. He showcased he was truly God, that he never sinned. And he was raised for our justification. And if we trust in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only means to be restored to God non-Christian, you will be justified. You will be declared righteous. You will be saved and you will be given the riches of eternal life bestowed on us only through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Non-Christian, let today be the day that you repent of your sins, you turn from your sins, and you trust in Jesus Christ alone. The only one who paid the price for your sins who can forgive you of your sins, who can clothe you in His righteousness, and who can reconcile you back to God through eternity. Let today be the day. And to the Christian that is here this morning, I am sure many of you have heard the phrase, the frozen chosen. It is the idea that individuals, typically, who tend to affirm the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination or the sovereignty of God, 
that we tend to be a little more callous, maybe a little more self-centered, a little cold, maybe not quite as evangelistic in our efforts. I mean, hey, it's God who chose, right? I'm just going to stay in my lane and let him do the work. But church, to be adopted into the family of God, it is the greatest privilege we could ever receive. To be adopted into the family of God is the greatest privilege we could ever receive. And to rewrite the Spider-Man principle or the Peter Parker principle for a second with great privilege comes great responsibility. When we were chosen by God to be his people, we were called to a great responsibility. We were not called to live however we would like because we are now part of the elect. We are not called to let sin abound. But as verse 4 says, we were chosen and our responsibility, our call is to be holy and blameless. R.C. Sproul pointed out that the Lord does not ordain the end, salvation, without also ordaining the means to that end, which is evangelism. The Lord does not ordain the end without ordaining the means to that end. Thus, as the church, we have been called. We have been enlisted by God to be a means of sharing the gospel with the world. Part of our responsibility, part of our growth in holiness is that we get to participate in God's plan of how he calls his children to himself via the preaching, via the teaching, via the sharing, and the evangelistic efforts of the church. There is no room for the frozen chosen here with the privilege of being chosen by God. We have been enlisted to go and make disciples of of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus, it is my prayer that we, as the individuals who make up Faith Bible Fellowship Church, who affirm the doctrine of election, Lord, I pray it does not go to our head, that we not become prideful, but instead we become joyful, and we long in wonder in the perfect love and the will of God, that we let our minds be set on praise. Praise God in his most holy name for calling us and our filthy rags, for redeeming us and for cleansing us of our sins. And let us not become frozen or callous. We have been enlisted. We have been called to a great responsibility, church, and it is to grow in holiness. Let us learn to love our neighbors. And not just our Christian neighbors, not just our wealthy neighbors, not just our neighbors who look like us or act like us or vote like us, but all people, our neighbor, and all people need to hear the gospel. Thus, God, give us a zeal, give us a passion for the lost, a hunger and a boldness to share your truth and help us see the privilege we have been granted to be your children and to participate boldly in sharing with the world your means of saving it. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable are his ways. The God of the universe has sovereignly saved his church. Thus let us boldly partake in glorifying him by sharing his gospel message in all that we do, church.
To God be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we humbly come before you this morning. Lord, when we see our polluted rags and we see the wretches that we are, we can only come to you humbly. Before the creation of the world, you knew who your church would be. And we praise you for that. We praise you for calling us here as your church. Let us not become haughty over the fact, though, that we have faith in Jesus Christ. Let us be in all of our need for a Savior and then willing to go out and share that message with the world. What an honor, Father, not only to be part of your family, but to be enlisted, to be called by you, to be part of how you call people to yourself. Let us not overlook that in our life. But I pray, Father, give us opportunity to share with our neighbor your word, to love you, and to love people. Let us be unified in that church, I pray, or God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.